Hmm. Uh, there you go. Well, the gospel on it, and you pardon my water bottle. I've, I have. I'm just thirsty all the time here. A few more days ago. Uh, <clears throat> we have this table. We do this first Sunday of the month. Um, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And churches, we've been doing this since the day before Jesus died. Y'all realize that? Now, back then, I thought I had a picture of the Passover and them sitting around a table on there, Pam. I guess I don't. That's interesting. I believe you. Nope, you're right. I don't have it on there. It was there. It disappeared. We've been having all kinds of technical difficulties, but we're going to fix all that. They, the night before Jesus died, they, they celebrated a version of what we have here. It has kind of morphed into this. It was the Passover. You all remember the Passover? Um, and that was all about the children of Israel getting out of Egypt. And, and God, it was, a, it was a ceremony that they, they put together for these people as they, as they got out of the land of captivity over 300 years. God's people were captive. And, you know, you think about that. We've only been a nation for a little over 200 years. Israel was in captivity in Egypt for over 300 years. In fact, God told them exactly how long they would be there, and they were there to the day. And then God delivered them. But that night, God told them, he said, hey, I'm going to come. The death angel's coming. You better put this blood on your doorposts of a lamb without spot and blemish. And then that, here's what you got to do, because this is your last meal in captivity. How many of you glad that you can have your last meal in bondage? It can be over, right? Amen? You don't have to live like that. And the Lord has given us a plan to get out of that bondage. How many of you know that God wants you to live free? Amen? Jesus said, whom the sun sets free is sort of free. Is that what he said? No, he's free indeed. He is free, and that means fully free. Turn to your neighbor and say, fully free. Fully free. Fully free. I, don't you want to be fully free? I tell you what, Jay can attest to this. You go on a long fast, you're going to be fully free from something. <laughs> Where is, there he is. Would you agree with that, Jay? And Jay and I, we're praying about some stuff for both of us to be fully free from. Amen. I'm fully free from the clothes I started in <laughs> on September 1st. Jay and I were commiserating about that on the porch earlier. Whom the sun sets free is free what? Indeed. Fully free. And that whole gospel, by the way, gospel, interesting word. It's a, it's a word that for some reason the translators of Scripture decided not to translate. Um, it's actually the Greek word, gospel. The English translation would be good news. But they decided to leave it as gospel, as the, as the um, Greek version of the word, and just translate the letters into English. And so we have the word gospel. The whole gospel is actually on this table. Now, obviously, the gospel is news. So there's not news on the table. You see a newspaper? No. So, so obviously, this represents the gospel. Just like these elements are not Jesus, they represent who Jesus is. Okay? 
So the gospel on the table, I want to talk to you about that this morning, with the idea of being fully free. Very simple. It's first of all the table. What's this table made out of? Wood. It's made out of wood. I've said this so many times that you probably should have this memorized by now, but the biggest problems people make when they come to God is that they're trying to fix things in order to come to God. They're trying to clean up their life to be good enough to come to God. Hadn't we all done that? It's called works. And, but let me tell you how silly that is. That's like trying to get cleaned up before you go take a shower. What's the purpose of the shower? It's to clean you up. Or like the reverse of that is also true. If you've ever raised, anybody raised boys out there? Dave and Angela, get ready for this one because it's coming. Uh, every one of my boys have done this, and I, and I had to get on them every time. They go in there, take a shower. They come out, got the same clothes on. <laughs> what in the world? I said, what are you doing? Well, I took a shower. Yeah, but you put the same dirty clothes back on. Yeah, but I took a shower. And, and they just, and by the way, um, this is free advice. I'm not going to charge any parents for this today. This is free don't even have that argument. Th their brains are not developed enough to apparently understand that. And it takes, it takes a woman, a female, eventually down the road to help them understand, you know what, clean clothes after shower is probably a good thing. <laughs> so just hang in and just love them and just tell them to obey you, but don't try to explain that to them because they're just not, good, they're not mentally capable of understanding, apparently. The, the girl, I never, I never had to say that one time to any of my daughters. I got three daughters and five sons. Um, the girls get it. They're apparently more mentally attuned than us fellows are. <clears throat> anyway, the whole idea is that we do not bring anything to the table. By the way, your Bible, y'all have a Bible this morning? If not, there's one in front of you. Find your way to Luke 22. But look at this book here. This book's divided in two parts. Anyone know what the two parts of the Bible are? The old and new what? All right, I got a challenge for you. How many of you use the word testament this week in your everyday language? Bet you didn't. Probably not, right? No, we don't use that word. You know what the word means? It's a contract. Now, if you work in law, you've probably used that. Or I bet you've read the word contract this week. Contract extensions. I think free agency is going on in some of our sports. You have contracts there. We hear the word contract all the time. Could I challenge you when you look at your Bible, don't think Old and New Testament. Think Old contract and then what? New contract. This is God's contract with people, with his creation. Old contract is, is the first half. And it set up everything, the new contract. Now, how many of you have ever had to go to a lawyer's office maybe to sign um, your papers to buy a house? You ever done that? We've done that before. And you generally go in a big conference room, don't you, right? And you sit down and you literally sign your life away. Uh, by the way, mortgage comes from the Latin, uh, mortge, which means death. Just a thought for you there. It's where we get mortician from. Uh, so I don't know what that's worth, but someone might need to hear that this morning. Um, yeah, and we sit down at this big table. Here's the thing. When you come to God, and I want you to hear me, when you come to God, you don't even bring the table. Not only do you bring nothing to the table, 
You know, God brings the table itself. David said in Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me, where? In the very presence of my enemies. I felt like that when I was signing my papers for the house. <laughs> you know, but God, look, God is the one who prepares the table. He is the one who does everything that needs to be done. Do you believe that this morning? God brings the table. And the table, made out of wood, the table is the cross. Where do you meet God? You meet him at the foot of the cross where everybody else does. You know, someone once wisely said the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The millionaire and a pauper, same people, standing at the foot of that cross because they got the same problem. It's a sin problem and they can't fix it. So I urge you to see this table today as something that God does. God brought the cross. God provided the table itself. So as we look at the gospel on the table, or could you say the gospel on the cross, we can see the good news. The good news is God asks you to bring nothing to the table. What does God ask you to bring to the table, church? Nothing. You bring nothing. You just show up. And you get honest about your sin. That's all you do. So that's the table. Let's look at the elements that are on this table. And to do that, let's go to Luke 22 and verse 14. Remember I told you Jesus celebrated this. Actually, he's the one that transitioned the celebration from Passover to what we now call communion or the Lord's Supper. We don't call it a sacrament. Um, we call it an ordinance because we believe that it's something ordained by God or ordered by God. But the elements themselves are common every day. Well, what's in here is oyster crackers, unleavened bread, and grape juice. Um, and that's all they are. You can go buy these yourself at Walmart very cheaply. But the elements are not what is special about this celebration. It's what those elements represent. So let me, let's look at what they represent. Verse 14 of Luke 22, here's what the Bible says. When the hour had come. What hour is that? That's when God was fixing a set in motion. All the dominoes. The first domino is going to fall for Jesus to be our salvation is the minute he opens that meal. The minute he stands as the host, as the elder amongst his men, raises the cup and says in Hebrew, blessed art thou, Lord of heaven and earth, maker of all that there is, who brings good life and bread into our home. As Soon as he makes that initial blessing, dominoes fall. And nothing stopping him a horrific six hours on the cross. Three days in a tomb. And only then resurrection. So when he says the hour has come, there's a lot. That, that, that phrase is pregnant. When the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, listen to this. With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will eat 
I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now you need to understand something here. In our order, we always start with the bread, don't we? I'm going to show you something. There were four cups. So we only have one. We'll pass it around in a minute. You each get one cup. There were four cups in the Passover celebration. Um, and and the, the first cup was a cup of celebration. And uh, so this is why he opens with that. Interestingly enough, it's the third cup that we use today, which is why we open with the bread. It's traditional to open. And by the way, did you notice there was one cup? They all shared it. He said, divide it amongst yourself. So they, they poured that wine in that one cup and passed it around. They each drank of it. And here's what the Bible says. As they went further, he opens it, and then he says, verse 19, and he took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I think that's up there, the bread represents the body of Jesus. Now, Jesus said, this is my body. But here's the thing. And this is why we believe, as, as we've searched the scriptures out, that this is just bread, is because Jesus is standing in front of them. Is he not? Body intact. And he said, this is my body. Well, obviously, he was being analogous or metaphorical because he's standing before them with his body intact. And we have another clue because at the end he says, take this, whenever you take it, do it in what? Let, let this bread that represents my body, whenever you eat this, remember who? Me. Oh, and I want to say something to somebody today. I know how some of you are because you're just like me. If you've had a sin-filled week, you go to take that bread, you ain't remembering him, you're remembering your sin. That's not what he said to do. He said, remember him who holds your sin against you no longer. Amen? Who no longer holds that sin. Don't remember your sin. Remember your Savior. That's what this thing is about, right? The bread represents the body of Jesus. The body of Jesus. And for a long time, people don't... I, I didn't understand for a long time. What? I got the cup. The cup's the easy one, right? The blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. I... We all kind of understand that part. The bread's a little mystical, or a little not so clear. Maybe I'll say it that way. So what do we do with the bread? Well, the bread obviously represents the body of Christ. He makes that clear. Um, and Jesus is called numerous places in the scripture. He's called the bread of life. You ever heard Jesus referred to as the bread of life? Um, and he has said that more than one time in the scriptures. And it confused people. And by the way, it's still confusing people today, <laughs> right? Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. That's exactly right. We're going to be celebrating that in the blink of an eye. How many of you know this time is going by fast? And they already got Christmas stuff out at Walmart. What is up with that? I mean, it's just crazy. But Bethlehem, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means? It's interesting. It's a two-part two Hebrew word. It means bet lacum. Bet means bread. Lacum means house. 
literally, Bethlehem means house of bread. Isn't it interesting that the bread of life was born in a house of bread? Isn't that fascinating? Jesus, I mean, all of it, this stuff is too connected to not be connected. All of this is a massive picture of who Christ is. Um, and that's why the gospel's sitting here on this table today. He's the bread of life. But what does that mean to us? Well, it means several things. In 1 Peter 2 and 24, that's towards the end of your Bible, right before the book of the Revelation. 1 Peter 2, 24. Let's see what, what this uh, bread of life, this body of Jesus has to do with our being set right with a holy God. 1 Peter 2.24. Here's what it says. Like I said, towards the end of your Bible. It says, who himself... Let me jump up to 23. Um, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten... But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now check this out. Who himself bore our sins. And where did he bear our sins, church? In his own body on the what? Tree, which is the cross, which equates to this table. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Did you see it? Jesus bore our sin where? In his physical body on that cross. Literally, I want you to check this out. Now, my sin and your sin was literally soaked into Jesus, into his physical body. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians um, 5.17, says, or 5.21, it says, for he who knew no what? Sin became what? Sin for us. He became my sin. How did he do that? God, through the picture of the old contract of putting the sin on the lamb and the lamb being sacrificed every year, takes the same, all that's a picture for what's happening now on the cross. At God, for all those who will put faith in Jesus, faith alone, no works, put that in Jesus, all of a sudden, God says, you know what? All their sin, past, present, and what? Future sin, I'm placing into my son. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. And that he, that's why he is called the bread of life. Now, what does that bearing of the body do. We'll flip back to Colossians. That's going back towards where we were in Luke. You'll flip back to Colossians 1, uh, verse 19 to 22. It says this, For it pleased the Father that in him all, the fu all fullness should dwell, and by him, listen to this, to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, now check this out. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has, and here's his word again, reconciled. How did he do, where did he do this reconciling? Verse 22, in the body of his flesh through faith. Or through death. 
to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now, this is key. He bears our sin where? In his body, on a tree, unto what? Death. So check this out. And the key word in this whole thing is reconciliation. It's all over the place. Reconciliation, reconciliation. Um, so why, just think this through. Why can't I be reconciled to God? Why do God and I have a problem? Why, do, why does mankind and God have an issue? Why are, we, why are we divorced, as it were? Sin, right? And whose side is the sin on? God's, right? This is, this, not God's side. Did I just say that? I can't believe I'm not struck dead standing right here. <laughs> it's not on God's side. It's on our side. We, got, we did the sin, and here's why, why is sin such a problem for God? Because he's holy means not just without sin, but so without sin that sin in his presence is immediately consumed and destroyed. Y'all catching that? That's what the whole hell thing's about, and it's real, and it's, it's, it's not funny. Okay? Because he's so holy, you put sin in the presence of a holy God, and it is consumed by the holiness of God. Just as if I put a piece of paper in that flame, the flame's going to stay, and the paper will be consumed. Because God is holy, sin cannot stand in his presence. So what's, what is what is this God to do? How, how can he set his children whom he loves and created how can he set us right with him so that we can enjoy his presence forever and ever he's got to deal with the sin and he's got to deal with the fact that there is sin and then he's got to deal with the penalty of that sin and only then can there be reconciliation can we come into his presence is that fair does that make sense okay so how does he do it body of jesus the bread of life he takes our sin and he literally places it into Jesus. And I want you to see your sin there. That's why Jesus said, hey, when you do this, don't remember you. Don't remember your sin. Remember who? Remember me. Because I took care of that for you. Isn't God good? Okay? So this is, this is the body. And reconciliation means to be made right. In other words, the price has been paid. My sin in Jesus... And then Jesus dying because the wages of sin is what? Death. That's just the rules. God can't change the rules that he in his holiness established. He can't and he won't. Because if he could and he would, he wouldn't be God. And you don't want a God who is not all powerful and all good. God's in a predicament. That's why there's Jesus Christ. And he bears our sins in his body. And he changes our identity. And, and the wages of sin is death. So check it out. My sins are in Christ on the cross, right? And then Jesus, what? Dies. So what happens to my sin? It's, it's paid for. It's, wages of sin is what? Death. Jesus died with my sin. As a result, I am now holy, and I can stand before who? God, do you see this thing? Is it not beautiful? It's redemption, and I'm no longer a sinner. By the way, be careful calling yourself a sinner. I used to be one. I was born a sinner. I guarantee you that. 
those beautiful babies back there, they're sinners. I hate to tell you. I don't have to tell the moms. They know. Three o'clock in the morning, they know that kid's a sinner. I'm going to tell you something. When you got a little baby, you thank God that thing's helpless because if that wasn't, that, that baby would kill you because it wants its own way and it wants it now. That little sin nature in that baby. We're, we come into this world messed up. We come into the sinner, but oh, let me tell you what. When God lets us see Jesus on that cross, and when God makes us aware of our sin inside of his son to the point of death, and we're reconciling, we say, God, I agree. We are translated from death to life, from darkness to light. Listen to this. From sinner to saint. I'm no longer a sinner. I am a saint who sometimes sin, and by God's grace, I sin less and less. Amen? It's the change of identity. It is reconciliation. Now, but there's one more element here, isn't there? So in the flesh, in the body, Jesus deals with our sin nature. The power of that sin over us. But there's still one more problem. And there's still one more element, and we call it the cup. And that represents his blood. And when you go... Read what Jesus said. It says he takes, after the meal was done, he takes the third, well, it's the third cup. He takes the cup. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. Obviously, his blood was still coursing through his veins at the time. So he wasn't speaking literally that his blood was in the cup. But he was saying, look, when you, when you drink this wine, remember who? Me, don't remember your sin. He took care of that. Remember the one who took care of your sin. So what do we do with a cup? Why, okay, if, if he bore our sin in his body on a tree, then why is there two elements? Why is there, why, is, why, the, why, why the cup? Well, because there's a, there's a flip side, and this is, this is the legal elements that must be fixed in order for God to have a relationship with us. You see, the body of Christ, Jesus takes care of the presence of sin. Because our sin is no longer held against us, it's held against who? Jesus. So the presence of our sin before God, it's not there. However, the penalty of the power of sin is still there. And the only way that can be taken away, the Bible is very clear, it says in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Here's the other thing. How did Jesus die? Died from blood loss. So when it says that he, he, he died for sins in his body on a tree, and he died, that bore unto death, that indicates the blood in that verse right there. So what do we do with this, the, the blood, the cup? Well, in Romans... Chapter 3, Paul explains to us very clearly what this is. Romans 3 and verse 25. We quoted the first verse 23 earlier, but look at verse 25. It says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his tolerance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate that the present time, uh, that at the present time, his righteousness, 
that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus' blood, God set forth as a propitiation. All right, how many of you use that word in your regular language this week? I bet not. Matter of fact, if my kid said that to me, I'd probably wash his mouth out with soap. That don't sound right to me. <laughs> propitiation. Um, I'll go back to the mortgage illustration. How many of you have ever paid off your mortgage and got to burn the note? You ever done that? Okay, one person, two people. All right, I'm looking forward to that day uh, to burn that note. You know why we burn the note? Because once something is burned, you can never get it back. And what you, you're not allowed to burn that note, listen to me now, until you have fully satisfied the debt. You with me? The word propitiation literally means to fully satisfy the debt. The debt is paid. What, what debt? The sin debt. And it is not just a legal term. It's an emotional term. And it literally means that Jesus, through his blood on the cross, satisfied, get this now, the wrath of God that has been built up against you and I because we have sinned. You know, and this is not popular to say in church anymore, but God is ticked off at sin. And God help you if that sin is attached to you. You hear me this morning? God is not playing around. It's the flame and the paper thing only a thousand times worse. Not fooling around with sin. God don't play with sin. God consumes sin. God judges sin. And his set stance towards sin is what the Bible calls wrath. It is a bubbling, boiling cauldron of the wrath of Almighty God. And I want to tell you something, the way I understand this for my own mind, and my own, I use it with my children, for them to understand is that there sits over the head of every human being a cauldron, and when we put another sin in there, the wrath of God boils hotter. Are you with me this morning? And there's some of you sitting in here today, you've come to God by your own works or by whatever, or maybe you don't even care about God, and I'm telling you something, you need to know the truth just like it was for me and so many in this room before me, is that there is a cauldron of the wrath of God sitting over the head of your soul. And when you go out into eternity, that thing's going to be dumped on you forever and ever. And it's not because God hates you. It's because God loves righteousness and he cannot abide sin. And God help you if you go into eternity and that sin is still attached to you. See, I don't like that. Oh, let me tell you, the backside of the story is glorious. You see, the gospel means good news, and it's not good until you get the bad news. The bad news is we're in some big trouble. But that word propitiate means to satisfy the wrath of God. It's like Jesus put the wrath out. Not really. He didn't put the wrath out. You know what he did? Listen to me, and I'm closing. He absorbed the wrath. He took it for you. He said, Preacher, why well, don't I have to spend eternity in hell? Listen to me. Jesus did it for you. He said, but He's only on that cross six hours. I know, but He's God. And the fact that a holy God had sin become a part of Him, six hours on a cross of a holy God ingesting sin, bearing hell for you, 
equals eternity of you doing it for yourself. That's the, that's the gospel on the table. As clear as I can make it. So what do I do with that? Prayerfully, hopefully, you'll do exactly this. What I did when I was a young man of 15. Grew up in a church. I was a professional church kid. I literally had chapters of scripture memorized before I ever walked in any kind of relationship with God. I, could, I knew the language. Everyone said, that, guy's, that kid's going to be a preacher. And I was lost and dead in my sins. But I was a good kid. Matter of fact, that May I graduated, or not graduated, school ended. And I won the award for Outstanding Male Christian of the Year at Enfield Christian Academy. And I wasn't even a Christian. Here's a scary thing. I thought I was. See, because when I was their age, I said a prayer. I said a little prayer. Lord, forgive me my sins and come into my heart. Take me to heaven when I die. Now, I don't know what to do with that. But I do know this. There's no such thing as that prayer in the Bible. There's no such thing as a sinner's prayer in the Bible. We made that up so that we could do something ritual-like and make people feel good that they're going to heaven. I said, oh, preacher, you're confusing me. Come back to my story. I prayed a little prayer when I was a kid. I go to camp. I hear a sermon much like the one you're hearing today. And when that thing was over, that guy said, anyone wants to come forward and confess Christ as their Savior, by the way, that's the way you do it. Who wants to believe on Jesus, you come forward. And I stood in my chair, and I mean the realization of my sin washed over me. I swear to you, I thought God maybe spilled a little bit of that wrath over onto me. I was terrified. And I wasn't terrified as much for myself. I knew I earned what I had coming from God. I was terrified that I owed the sovereign of the universe such deep debt that even at the age of 15 that I had sinned it up so much that I was in big trouble with a holy God. First time in my life that thought ever crossed my mind and I'm here to tell you I think that was a God thing because I C-minus student, not the smartest, not the brightest bulb on the chandelier. And I think God put that. God called me to Jesus, and I, I got that part. And as I stood there in the realization of who I was and who I wasn't and who I had offended and how much desperate trouble I was in, just as soon as I wallowed in that panic, all of a sudden, listen to me, all of a sudden the cro I saw Jesus in my mind. I saw him on the cross and it made sense to me for the first time. Because until you see your sin, your Savior means nothing to you. But oh, when I saw my Savior hanging between heaven and hell with my sin in him, his blood being poured out to cover the redemption of my sin, all of a sudden it all made sense. And all I could do was fall on my knees and say, God, I believe, I agree with you that I have sinned it up and I'm in trouble. And I also agree with you that Jesus is my only hope and my only answer and I flee to him tonight. In Jesus' name, save me. I believe. And I'm going to tell you something happened. 
something happened. God took that old me, the old Paul Jettle at the age of 15. And I don't have time to explain this, but I can show you out of the Bible. I believe he took my spirit, which is not limited by time or space, took me back in time and put me in Christ on that cross. And I died. And in that same moment, a new Paul Jettle was resurrected who was one with the Holy Spirit. And things changed. Now, did I mess up? Oh, let me, I, I don't have time to tell you how I messed up from that age. But here's the difference. No wrath went in my bowl because Jesus absorbed it all. That is the gospel on the table. Now let me just review this and we're done. You don't bring the table. You don't bring anything but your sin. And you say, God, I get it. I get it. I have sinned it up. And I owe you a debt I have no hope of paying. But Jesus paid it all. And I believe that. I agree with you that Jesus' death in my place is enough. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from God, first of all. <laughs> and all of that wrath goes on to Jesus. Saved from yourself. And saved from your enemy. You are set apart in his. And that's the gospel on the table. Did you pray with me? Father, I come to you today. I thank you for Jay and Lisa.